Good morning. I think it's time for me to get up. I try not to get up before the musician sits down. And uh, grandson, are you going to help me? Now, I don't need the chair, but I can put my Bible on it. Thank you. This is Daniel, my grandson. And it was Sarah, my granddaughter, the beautiful musician. Hey, Rachel. What did I say? <laughs> Who did I say? It is Rachel. I know Rachel. But when you got 14, it's a, uh, you have to start at the top and go down. But it's, it's good to be back at North Fort Worth. Uh, I became pastor of this church in December 1967 over on Circle Park on the north side of Fort Worth, not far from the Billy Bobs, over in that part of town. It was an exciting place to live. We lived over there several years, not far from the church. They moved out to Haltom City. But it's, it's always a joy. And I, I appreciate my son David, or my son. <laughs> I've already preached one and all, all of my mental uh, abilities have been exhausted, I think. <laughs> My son, Stephen. Uh, I appreciate him honoring me and letting me come and share with you this morning. He's been gone for, can you believe it? Two months. Uh, you gave him a sabbatical. I couldn't even spell the word. <laughs> I've been doing this 65 years, and I never had a sabbatical, barely a vacation. In fact, regularly we took less time than we were allowed for vacations. Quite honestly, I've never found anything I would rather do on the earth than to be preaching and teaching among the people of God. I, I speak that truthfully. And my wife will probably confirm that that's the way it's been for all of these years. But I thought about, in fact, Stephen, when he asked me to take this last Sunday before he comes back next Sunday, we talked about what what kind of emphasis did we need this morning? And I suggested to him that I wanted to talk with you this morning about what you need to know about your pastors. I got that idea from the Bible, obviously. The best discussion there is about the role of a pastor in the life of a church is found in the Ephesian letter, chapter 4, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 11. Now, I must confess, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we went to New Mexico to go to church with our oldest granddaughter, Sarah, and her family, because our oldest great-grandson was baptized that Sunday. And that was a wonderful experience. Being uh, his dad and mother met here at this church, and uh, when he was 
the dad was working as a intern in in the ministry of the church. But when you get old, you're either losing things or you're leaving things. You spend half of your time looking for something you put up where you could find it. <laughs> I left my Bible, my preaching Bible, my new Bible, which Rachel and Daniel and my grandchildren gave me last Christmas. And because I left it, I had to go back to my old Bible, my King James Bible, the original, the Holy Bible. <laughs> you young folks didn't know that. But uh, back in the mountains of East Tennessee, where I came from, some of them have signs out front, the Baptist churches do, and they have a sign that says, King James only. They have no idea that the English language has made any changes. <laughs> but I still love the clarity and the rhythm of the King James Version. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna begin reading this morning at verse 11. Actually, the passage begins in the earlier part of that fourth chapter, which is talking about the ascended Lord who from his position in the heavens is now filling all things. The concept in that filling all things is he's bringing everything under his control and his direction. But as it relates specifically to the church, he picks up in verse 11. Would you stand? I probably can't tell whether you're sitting or standing in this dark atmosphere, but if you stand, I want to begin reading with verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 4. Follow me if you have your Bible or I'm not sure whether it'll be on the screen or not. Verse 11. And he, that is the ascended Lord, gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now edifying, that's an old word. It means the building up, the building up of the edifice of the of the body of Christ, the temple in which God manifests himself. Verse 13, till, this is going to be true, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, a mature, complete man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, untaught, unlearned. There would be no more children tossed to and fro and carried away about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive us. But 
speaking the truth in love may grow up unto him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. From whom, now catch the connection, from whom, this Christ, the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working to the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. And thus we read the Word of God. You may be seated. It's some somewhat uh, difficult today as you move from church to church, which I do in my preaching ministry, to know exactly what nomenclature you use as you're addressing the leadership of the church. Churches have pastors, some have senior pastors, some have leading pastors, some have executive pastors, all of them have, most of them have a pastor, but they, there's a variety of terms that they use today. The pastor is usually <coughs> a central term in their description of their spiritual leaders in the church. Stephen has been the pastor. I think Stuart told me in the earlier service that he has been the senior pastor. Now that can be confusing because David White, I think, is actually older than Stephen. But the senior pastor is over the older pastor in the leadership role. But I use the word pastors, plural, because really every minister on this staff shares, carries a part of the load of the pastoral ministry. It's not a one-man act. It, uh, it requires several others to be a part of that. <coughs> Pardon me. It's an allergy. It's not fatal, at least not yet. I want to share with you in these moments from this text four or five things that you need to know about your pastors. How does God see them? What does God say about them? What, what's important that you understand as you relate to them as your pastor? Here's the first one. You need to know that your pastor shares your humanity your frailties, and your weaknesses. <laughs> Let me read for you. You still got your Bible open. Go with me to the 23rd chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 23. And I want to read what Jesus said. It's one of those, one of the most straightforward 
chapters and all of the teachings of Jesus where he addresses the shortcomings of uh, the scribes and the spiritual leaders in the Jewish church of that day. And as he begins to describe them and to rebuke them, he reminds them of how they want everybody to know how important they are in the church. And you begin, Dong, about verse 7. He says they love greetings in the markets and can be, they need, and, and are called of men, rabbi, rabbi. Now, rabbi is a, a Jewish term, a Hebrew term that means teacher, teacher, with a capital T. I mean, the teacher. They love when they walk down the streets that Jewish people would respond to them with great respect. Teacher, teacher. But listen what Jesus says about how it's to be among us. He says, verse 8, But be not ye called rabbi, that is, teacher with a capital T, the teacher, the source of all light and all truth in the congregation. Teacher, be not you called teacher, for one is your master. One has the authority really to teach you, even Christ, even the Messiah, and all you are brothers, are brethren. Now underline that in your mind. You've got staff members, you've got a pastor, you've got a minister of music, you've got Minister of Administration, you you remember those? You've got that good-looking guy, Sam. No, it wasn't Sam. It was uh, Caleb, and Sam who led us here. But they're just like you. They're not spiritually superior to you. They're not over you in some moral, authoritative sense. They're from among you. They share in your struggles and your temptations and in your humanity. They know what it is to be tempted and they know what it means to fail and be sinners. They're all flawed. I didn't want to dis disappoint you or to disillusion you, but every spiritual leader you've got, Everyone in the Bible except Jesus was flawed, struggling. Your pastors, your pastor Stephen and the others, they are your fellow strugglers in the way. Well, let's read the passage, read the rest of the passage. Pick up at verse 11. And he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. And he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. That'd be good if I had Stephen and David and, and 
all of them just sitting right here, look them right in the eye, and say, all right, guys, humility is the word. Servanthood is the nature of what you're called to do. And you need to know that and need to recognize. You need to appreciate the fact that if you cut one of these, they bleed. If you cast angry words at them, they hurt. If you criticize them, it'll affect their sleep. They're human. They're not a special gender. There's not male and female and preacher. They belong to each of us in our humanity. That's the first thing you need to know. Second, you need to know that they are a gift from God. <laughs> That's what the text says. Look with me. Let me get back over on the passage for the day, the Ephesian passage, and look with me at that 11th verse again, and hear what he said. Verse 11, and he gave some, he gave, that is the ascended Lord, you read those verses before, who came down and went to the lower parts of the earth and then ascended, and from that ascended position at the right hand of the Father, he is still ministering to and ministering through his body, which is his church, and he gave some, gave them to the churches, apostles, prophets, uh, evangelists, teachers, and Pastors and teachers. Now, my old version has pastors and teachers. It's better to have it pastor slash teachers because the pastor is a teacher and the teacher is a pastor. But he gave them. Hmm. He gave them. The Lord did. What does that mean? It means he called them. Pastoral work is not a, it's not a career. It's a calling. God puts an urgency in your heart that this is what your calling in the world is to be. And you obey that. That happened to me as a college freshman, 1953, 66 years ago. I didn't seek that, didn't expect that, but a calling came. And with the calling, there comes divine preparation. And I'm not talking about just seminary, though I did that and did it gratefully and benefited greatly from it. Most of the preparation is in the experiences of life as God put you through the routines of life as a father, as a husband, as a neighbor, as a member of a church, as a leader in the church, you never get to the place that God's not still working in you to make you what you need to be so you can be what you need to be among his people. God prepares his servants. <laughs> he lets them go through tough places so they can help people who come to them who are going through tough places. He lets them go through temptation 
so they'll know how to give counsel to those who are being tempted. But they're a gift. He calls them, he prepares them, and then he places them. I pastored seven churches. I had this confidence in all of those years when I was pastoring a different church, this church for 10 years, my last pastorate in Lubbock for 15 years. I had this confidence. God called me and God put me here. I'm where God put me. Now, as long as I could know I was where God put me, that meant that through him I'd be adequate for whatever issue might come. <laughs> and they always come. I mean, the bigger the church, the more of them. But your security is not in your ability, not in your confidence. Your security and strength is found in the Lord who placed you there. God never placed me. I always had this confidence. God never placed me in that church to fail. God put me in that church to see that church succeed and be blessed while I was there. So I went with a confident expectation that the Lord who gave me to the church, gave me to the church to lead the church into a blessed life of usefulness. So they share our humanity. They're a gift of God. Don't ever forget that. Next time you start criticizing them, just remember, you know God gave him to us. Thank you, Lord. And give us patience to put up with him until he becomes more perfect than he is now. <laughs> Amen? Third thing. Understand and remember that your pastor is a shepherd. That's what the word pastor means. That's the idea that's in that word pastor. It's a shepherding word. Uh, Two or three things that that reminds us of. One, what are the things that characterizes shepherds, at least as the Bible describes them? Is there love for sheep? All kinds of sheep. Old sheep, young sheep, sick sheep, well sheep, all kinds of sheep. Of course, there are wolves who also love sheep. But wolves love sheep because what they can get out of them. Pastors love sheep because what they can do for them in serving them and helping them. They love sheep. I mean, uh, and they're not all easy to love. Some of them are smelly. Some, all of them are dumb. Yeah, sheep. That's not a compliment when God calls us sheep. But it is a blessing when God calls the man who serves us a shepherd, an under-shepherd, under the good and great shepherd, the Lord Jesus. 
Another thing about these shepherds, it is their task to lead the sheep. Remember John 10 where the Lord talks about the good shepherd, how he knows his sheep and they know him and they follow him and he goes before them. He takes them out and he brings them in. He's a leader, not a dictator, not a autocrat, but a loving, trustworthy leader. Uh, there's a special joy in having a relationship with a congregation of sheep where you develop a love relationship, a trust relationship with them, where you can just about know if God puts something in your heart that the church needs to do, that he'll put a willingness in the heart of the people to do it. And it's a joy to watch the dynamics of divine enablement as God uses a mortal, weak, <laughs> human that he saved and sanctified and filled with the Spirit to be a blessing by providing spiritual leadership to the congregation. Pastor, know that your pastor is a shepherd, every one of them. Fourth, know that these pastors are Teachers, pastor slash teacher. These two terms, pastor talks about the heart with which he does it. The responsibility that's been given to him to do it, shepherd. Teacher talks about the methodology, how he goes about doing it. Teaching the things of God. He's not the master teacher, the Lord is the master teacher. In fact, in 1 John chapter 2, beginning of verse 18, John taught us that every one of us have the anointing from the Lord. You do. So you don't need someone to tell you about God in a way that enables you to know God. The Holy Spirit lives in you, and you have a genuine knowledge of God in your heart. But... He puts teachers in your life to encourage you. And the words he uses here, that they may come to be mature and that you may be able to equip them for the work of the ministry. I asked David White in the early service, he's sitting on the front row. He knows more than anybody I know about Norfolk Worth. I said, David, how many how many ministers does Norfolk Worth have? And we hesitated a minute. And then I said to him, tell me, David, how many resident, resident members, that is, they're members, you've got their address, you know their phone number, you know where they live. They identify themselves with the Norfolk Worth Baptist Church. How many of them are there? He said, well, that's about 850. 
850. I said, well, that means North Fort Worth Baptist Church should have 850 ministers. <laughs> if you join this church to be ministered to, that's good. But let me tell you something better. If you join this church to perform a ministry and to be a part of a ministry, that's better. That's a whole lot better. Church gets boring if it's all about receiving and it never comes, becomes a matter of giving. If you don't learn to use the spiritual gifts that God has given you, you're never quite going to get church. It's just never going to be it's never going to be important to you like it should be. But the pastor, he says, he has this, these have this equipping test. They, they're enabling you to become, well, to help you find your spiritual gift, learn how to use that gift, and find the joy of serving God by serving others in the body of Christ and in the world in which we live. Teacher. Now, in a church like yours with 850, that's not a one-man job. Actually, those who study this kind of things tell me that, uh, that as far as it comes to really become really in-depth in relationships, the limit is about hmm, 60. 75. That means that a church your size, you need several other pastoral figures that are sharing in that pastoral work so that everybody has somebody on this staff that they relate to pastorally and they feel comfortable. They can go to them. They can call them. They can share their burdens with them. They can, they can depend on them and they can look to them for help. Every staff member should have a pastor's heart, a shepherd's heart, but it has limits. Look to all of these for a composite of what it means to be a pastoral staff because they share the burden and minister to you collectively and individually. There we are. What do you need to know? They're, they're brothers, not fathers. They're brothers, not fathers. You know, some groups get it confused. They think the pastor is a father. Use that kind of terminology. That's misguided. No one is your father spiritually but God. No one is your ultimate teacher but the Lord above through the Holy Spirit. So they're brothers with you. They're from among you. They're like you. And they're gifts. God's gift. He's made them and helped them to become what they are. And they're pastors. They, they have a heart that throbs and aches 
for the welfare and for the health of the body. And they're helpers, they're teachers, they're instructors, they're encouragers in the path to maturity and usefulness in the family of God. In the early service, I, I told about one of the greatest pastors that's ever lived in the English-speaking world. His name was Charles Hatton Spurgeon. He lived in the late 1980s into the, up to the 20th century that um, pastored in London, became a pastor as an older teenager, never had theological training. But when God saved him, he saved a young man who had a tremendous intelligence and capacity to receive and to minister. Never had England heard anybody who preached like Charles Spurgeon. This was his pattern. He would sit down on a, he studied, he was such a prolific reader and student, but he'd sit down on a Sunday or a Saturday night and he'd take a sheet of paper and he'd outline, just a brief outline, I've seen copies of them, uh, an outline of what he wanted to share with the people on Sunday morning. And then when they came to the church on Sunday, Metropolitan Tabernacle, which they built just for his ministry, seated about 5,000 people. No sound systems. I don't know how they did it. But he would speak to that. It was full every time he preached. No manuscript, no reading anything. Just a extemporaneous overflow of his heart as he shared the truth with the people. There was a stenographer who took down every word he said. After the service, he would sit down and edit what he had said and the stenographer had written down. And on Monday morning, that sermon would be in full print in the London newspaper. On Tuesday morning, it would be in full print in the newspaper in Philadelphia and New York and Boston all across the country, the United States, and across the English-speaking world. Tremendous man. Tremendous influence. Prolific in every part of his life. One Sunday morning, there were two men from out in northern England who had spent the weekend in London, and one of their ambitions was to go to church metropolitan that morning and hear the Spurgeon preach. And they got there early, walking streets of London. As they walked up toward the tabernacle, uh, a stranger walked over to them and greeted them and asked them, have you come to hear Spurgeon preach this morning? And they, they said, yes. He said, well, let me take you on just a brief tour before the service starts. And he took these two Englishmen into the building. And he took them downstairs under the worship center. And he opened the door to a large room, larger than this room. And in that room, there were 700 members of the church on their knees praying. And they listened for a few minutes. 
they were agonizing with God about God using their pastor that morning, God enabling their pastor that morning, God sending his word forth through their pastor with power that morning. After they'd observed a few minutes, the man shut the door and led the two men back and said to them, let me introduce myself to you. I'm Charles Spurgeon, but that is the power room. He said, every time I preach, there's people like this on their knees, praying with faith and expectancy that God will make me the pastor and preacher that they need. And he said, God, is faithful to answer their prayers. Where's the power room? I, I noticed in the video that Caleb said there's a plan to put together some a prayer strategy. I remember when I went to Lubbock years ago, there was a small group, four or five of them, that met in the pastor's study while I preached every Sunday morning. They were holding me up before God. I don't really suggest that kind of strategy. I do it before the service. I do it at a separate time. Because when I preach, I want everybody there who can be there to hear the word of God. But oh, doesn't matter who placed them in the church. Doesn't matter what God's done to get them ready to serve. If somebody, somebody is not lifting them up to God, their words become powerless. Their gestures are frantic and meaningless. The God who put them there enables and anoints and favors them as the people they serve pray for them. I told about my mother-in-law in the early service. I'm going to take time. I don't know whether they have time or not. I'm going to take time. Just tell you this. It's, a, it's one of the greatest things that's ever happened in my life. My mother-in-law, Alice's mom, was a real person of prayer. I used to say, she lived with us for five years, but I used to say of her, if she ever starts praying for me to die, I'll just go ahead and call the undertaker. Because <laughs> <laughs> I suspect she was close enough to God that that would have happened. But uh, during, before she moved to be with us, when she was still living at her home in Mississippi, I had a special opportunity to preach in, in Columbia, South Carolina for the evangelism conference of the South Carolina Baptist Convention. They met that year and most years in the famous First Baptist Church of Columbia, which was a historic old building, and the place would be filled, I mean completely filled, balcony all around with people. 
And my responsibility was to preach in the middle of the afternoon, second sermon after lunch. Now, if you're ever going to become a preacher or a speaker of any kind, you're not wise to accept opportunities to speak or preach right after lunch. People are drowsy, they're sleepy, they're dull. It's hard to keep them awake. I sat there anticipating my time to preach, sleepy myself, drowsy myself. And I looked around, the poor brother who went before me was having a hard time keeping them awake. I thought, oh Lord, why have you given me this hour? What in the world will I do? And I had no strategy for that kind of situation. But he finished and they did what they would do. They sang a song or something. And then I stood up to preach. It's one of the most remarkable experiences of my life. As I began to read the scriptures, as I did this morning, God opened a wide window in heaven and a cool, refreshing, awakening breeze came from the throne in heaven and swept across that congregation. I have never preached so freely, so eloquently, so movingly in all of my born days. There were some of those country preachers from South Carolina up in the balcony. I was really anxious that some of them were not so intensified and electrified and spiritualized that they were going to leap out of the balcony. I mean, it was, there was that kind of energy, that kind of, that kind of flow in that moment. Oh, that crowd thought I was the best preacher on the planet when I got through. Someone told me that. I got home. Ms. Reynolds, my mother-in-law, called and she asked Alice, said, how was David, how was D.L.'s uh, uh, trip to South Carolina? She said, well, let, let me just give him the phone, let him tell you. So I took the phone from her and I described for her what, just what I told you. What a remarkable, moving, heavenly experience it was. And she began to weep. She began to praise the Lord. She began to lift her voice. I was in Lubbock, Texas. She was in Myrtle, Mississippi. But she was, her cup ran over. I mean, really ran over. And then she explained to me. She said, D.L., that morning, God woke me up early, put a burden on my heart for you, and I fasted and prayed all day and asked God to enable you and to bless you. And he did. Oh, I wish she could have done that every time I preached, but she didn't. She did it that time, but it taught me something. No matter how well prepared I am, it's a breeze from heaven that comes and answers a prayer that makes the difference. You, you feel like you 
feel like your staff's not adequate. Maybe it's your prayer support that's weak. Hmm? Hmm? Could that be true? Oh, it's time of transition. The pastor's been gone for two months. He's been praying, thinking about, dreaming about, discussing with others. The ministry he has here and wants to have before the Lord. Why don't you commit yourself when he comes to this place next Sunday morning that before he stands up here, maybe he'll have a platform. When he stands up here, that you will already, already ask the Father to open a heavenly window. Make sure the power room, the prayer room is working. Will you do it? Will you do it? You'll have to intend to do it. You'll have to plan to do it. Will you do it? I lifted up to the Lord, the Lord this morning a list of about 75 preacher friends who are standing somewhere today by name, with gratitude, and with expectancy. Lift up these who walk among you until it begins to be obvious that the anointing of the Lord is upon them and God is at work through them. Okay? Pray with me. Father, I thank you this morning for giving me this time with this group of people who know you and that you have gathered here to the North Fort Worth Baptist Church. Thank you for them, Lord. Thank you for what you've done. As Pastor Stephen comes back next Lord's Day, may he come back full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, full of faith, full of power, full of grace, like those New Testament servants of yours. And may... May the light begin to burn brighter and brighter and brighter here in this obvious place along I-35. And multitudes of people be drawn here because the Lord is rumored to be in this place. In Jesus' name I pray and for his sake. And the people said, Amen. Amen.